And we're ready for another edition of the Boulder Bolding. My name is Keith Ruckhouse, and I'm here with Alec Tsukatos. We are going to continue our discussion of land and property and the use of land and its relationship to economics. And this is all in connection with our overall topic of a steady state economics and this relationship to the strategies that's been laid out by Herman Daly for a steady state economy. So our discussion of land, ownership of land, property, its relationship to economics goes back to three strategies that Alec had laid out early on in our series, session two. Our discussion today is going to cross over uh, with several of these strategies and several of these we've already addressed. So one of them is to tax or put a quota for public to use natural resources. We discussed that a little bit. Another one is stop treating the scarce as if it wasn't and stop treating the non-scarce as if it was. And this is going to very much relate to land and our discussion of money today. But today we want to focus in on uh, another one of the strategies, which is to shift tax from people, mainly labor, and capital, mainly uh, natural and production items, to natural resources. And so this is where we are going to focus in on today. Alec is going to talk to us about Henry George's land tax. But uh, Alec, before we start, I want to return to part of our discussion that we had last time, where I made the observation that essentially you just simply took land. You just said, this is my land, and you took it. And a lot of times you took it either from the wilderness or you took it from another uh, hunter-gatherer community. And it was your land, per se. It was not private land. It was the community's land or the tribal land. It was your land as long as you could keep it, which means you needed to be sustained by it or to produce something that you could trade with uh, other groups, and you also had to preserve it, which means protect it from invading groups uh, from the outside, but also you needed to protect it from a civil strife within the community that could destroy it. Essentially, through the ages, uh, this has still been the case about land, that land is simply taken, and it's your land as long as you can hold it and protect it and be sustained by it. In larger civilized societies, the way to take land was one by force, which means a military conquest of some kind. But what a lot of people don't realize is the other way to take and keep land is to put land occupiers into debt to such a degree that the only way out of the debt is to become a servant and to relinquish the land. Alec, this second way to take land from someone else is almost the worst because it turns the person who is really has some sort of property or ownership in the land and makes them a stranger to the land, makes them a foreigner, a parasite on the land. And this essentially makes people homeless. It makes them a stranger to walking the earth, to being a part of the earth. And it also creates a, a massive situation where land resources now get concentrated into a small, narrowly-minded interest group. Even more destructive the people are not only disenfranchised from the land, but then it breaks down social bonds, both to land and to other people, in which uh, those who end up controlling the land also 
make, as David Graeber talks about, turns people into commodities that can be bought and sold. And uh, this all always happens once social cohesion uh, tears away. Yes, the ways rather of expropriating land which is necessary for life of human beings can have, as you say, Keith, a different way of getting that land or get the benefits from that land. Originally, you can get the benefits of that land by land economists and others mean nature, yes? It's not only uh, a piece of land, but water and air and animals and mosquitoes and uh, rivers and oceans and the natural environment, essentially. It's in this sense that we lived in an original Eden, if you will, where all of these things were given to us to use and to get life from and beauty as a gift, that we didn't really have to work for it. But there were ways in which that land could be taken by some people and therefore you could be excluded from the use of that land. And it can be taken, as you said, by conquest, it can be taken by purchase, and also it can be taken uh, as a result of incurring debt, and the person that you owe the debt to, since you're incapable of paying back the debt, or even the interest of the debt, then um, that person, or that entity, or that group of people could take away the land from you. And so you would be essentially deprived of, uh, of life as a result of not having access to the physical world. I, I actually give it a name of pharaonic economics. That's how uh, uh, the Jewish people were enslaved to the Egyptian pharaoh uh, over time is through debt. And so the only resort that they have was to scream for help. Right. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have some philosophers that were uh, giving them the ethics of uh, why they could respond even uh, violently to regain that land. Even with the religion, uh, doesn't seem to have helped really very much. And so the only thing that they could do is scream. In the Old Testament, of course, it's the case that God hears the screams and uh, help and leadership of Moses to leave that place to get land elsewhere. Right? So it's not as if they can leave and do without land. It's that the land in Egypt, were, their land was taken away. Therefore, they had to go elsewhere in order to be able to get the fruits of the land or the land of milk and honey. Right. These are the places where uh, the resources of the land are a gift. Now, obviously, it's the case that in order to get some of those gifts, you have to put in your own effort. Right. So if you want to get oil out of the ground uh, to use it for your own purposes, then you have to mix your labor with that original gift. So it's understandable that you want to be remunerated for your own effort, but not necessarily to be remunerated for the gift of the earth because you didn't produce it. Okay. Is this where we're going to get into Henry George a little bit? Then? Uh, yes, quite a bit. So, so at any rate, just to finish the story, as you, you, I've learned from you, and some of it vaguely known to me earlier, and that is that the Jewish people in the desert find themselves in a situation where 
they look back to Egypt, even though they were slaves, that at least they had something to eat or some measure of uh, safety, if you will, some very little bit of safety. And so they hanker back to uh, their life of imprisonment, but at least they had some measure of life. Right. And that's when Moses gets really uh, annoyed at them. Uh, they don't realize what, uh, what has happened and the intervention of God in helping them. And so he goes and tells God, uh, please do something uh, because these people that have been saved from their misery are now complaining. And so he sends mana, and one of the wonderful characteristics of mana is that you can, you can be fed, but uh, that food lasts only for a day. Otherwise, if you attempt to accumulate, it goes rotten. So the idea there is that you really need to be trusting God, or God's gift, namely uh, nature, rather than accumulating for yourself, because if you accumulate, it's essentially a distrust of God. It's a, it's a sign that you don't trust that this will continue to, uh, uh, to be forthcoming, nature will be forthcoming. All right, then. So, land in economics, as we said earlier, is the equivalent of all the natural environment. So, last time we talked about the notion of property. Uh, let's not associate land with property. So, you can have property in land, but it's not the only thing that you can own. You can also own machinery. You can also own your own labor. You can also own stocks. Any asset can be owned. And... Uh, uh, of course, today, w uh, one of the things that comes with ownership is that uh, we can have uh, very, very big companies uh, own uh, information. And so they can deprive people of that information. And if that information is necessary for their life or their well-being, then uh, they have to pay uh, a price uh, for it in order to get that information. So, we're talking not about all of those other assets, but about this one particular one of land. Land has that characteristic that it doesn't belong, it's not given to any one person, but it's given to mankind. Okay, it's right. Just like air. You can't uh, say, just take the notion of air. Nobody thinks that somebody needs to own the air and then sell it to you. Yeah? It's very, very clear that that would be uh, something that nobody would accept because that person who owns the air will be able to determine your life and death. And anyway, uh, air doesn't belong to one person. It belongs to all of us. Now, my understanding of Henry George is that this is the case with all of the natural environment. Take something else that we might agree on, that the uh, uh, radio frequencies or television uh, frequencies cannot be owned by one person. They are, again, a gift of God. And so what you can do as television and radio uh, companies can do. They can rent those from the common. And the money goes back to the common. Whatever is uh, paid to be, to be able to use uh, television and radio uh, goes back to the common, and that can be used then for the benefit of everybody in the United States or any other country. Now, with respect to the next big one, which is water, you know, again, you can't have life without water, that uh, we've uh, slipped quite a bit. Indeed, people, individuals and companies can own the resources of water rather than consider water as a common good. 
or a public good that is owned by everybody and therefore it is the representatives of everybody that can control how much water you can use and, and for what purposes it may be. Now, of course, land doesn't consist only with water and air, but also, of course, with the capacity of the earth to produce uh, food or to uh, even produce uh, clean air as a result of uh, trees, for example. So there again, if you deprive people of land, then they cannot live. And even if you take it back to the Declaration of Independence, there's a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you can't have life unless you have access to natural resources. So this idea of ownership of land by some people and non-ownership of the land by others is opposed, it seems to me, to both the Old and the New Testament, as well as to common reason, that, or, or deriving from the Declaration of Independence, that you can't have life unless you have access to natural resources. Which is... Uh in the Jubilee and several laws of the Old Testament, the whole idea of a uh, forgiveness or a clean slate of the economy, one of the key aspects was the return of inherited lands. So if you lost your land because of mainly because of debt, that that would be returned to you in the seventh year or in the 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 50th year. 49, 7 times 7, 49, right. and then they added an additional right. uh, one to make it uh, a jubilee year. But the jubilee year, as you've taught me, uh, Keith, uh, was preceded by the practice of both Sumerian and Babylonian kings, you know, both the palace and the priesthood, who created the money to begin with, every now and then, or with the ascension of a new king, would excuse the debt, not for moral reasons. This is what, for me, was really quite central that you showed me, but for very, very practical reasons, namely that if you did not forgive the debt, Either you, the king, and the priests, was, uh, their lives would be in jeopardy because people would rebel and kill them. And the other one is that if the person who was uh, in debt would use all of his time and all of his endeavors for returning the debt or attempting to return the debt, they would not be available for uh, building roads or being in the army, yes? Yep. So, uh, for very practical reasons, these leaders sort of excuse the debt. Whereas with the Jewish people, it seemed as if, and the Jewish scriptures, it seemed as if it was a moral goal. You did it because you're a good person. This was the right thing to do, not the, the practical thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And indeed, it was thought that it was never practiced or very, very, very rarely practiced and not practiced to its full extent. Yeah, I think most Old Testament scholars still tend to think that it was a nice idea, Yes, never came into fruition. And uh, just for the sake of our listeners, um, all that information that I passed on to Alec via my book was uh, through the thorough research of Michael Hudson into ancient Mesopotamian societies, and uh, he he's the one that's really um, been the the leader in that. And his latest book, which is called "Forgive Them Their Debts," is is uh, kind of one of his lifetime works of explaining all that and making that uh, realistic. And um, an interesting part of that book, Alec, is that he talks about after the Persian Empire and from the Hellenistic Empire and the Roman Empire all the way to today, somehow we've 
got to this thing that debt cannot be forgiven, that that's just yes. an absolute no-no. And uh, Michael Hudson, at least, shows through the, through the whole Western civilization how troublesome this idea is that you cannot forgive debt, that a debt must always be paid in full, and uh, how it, it just perpetually creates an, an unjust society and gross wealth uh, disparity. And it just simply was not the case that that was a, an always and forever thing. The interesting thing, uh, as you mentioned, about uh, the ancient Mesopotamian kings was, and, and its connection to land is, you know, if everyone is indebted to an oligarchy, uh, the land, I, I'm going to lose all my labor. <laughs> yes. And, you know, the, the land can't be tilled. The, the land can't be worked. Yes. So the transition period is, uh, in my estimation, a bit open to question. That is to say, it wasn't an abrupt change to, instead of the palace and the king producing or creating money, it was uh, the moneylenders, or what eventually became bankers, if you will, and a particular social class that is associated with them. So they're the class that comes between the aristocracy of the priesthood and, and the king and, on the, uh, and the barons, if you will, and the other side of that being uh, the people that work the land and the people that eventually in an industrial society work the machines. So you have money-owning class, money-creating class, and money-owning class, and those are the ones that don't want to give up on uh, on debt, by and large, because they, uh, they are going to lose by giving up debt, and they're not going to gain anything by excusing debt, whereas the kings... And the priests would gain something by excusing debt, namely their lives right. and their uh, privileges, whereas the banking community doesn't have anything to lose by holding on to debt. So let's go now to the issue of uh, land. Now, Henry George has uh, quite a bit of a background, but... By and large, he's a publisher, and he also started thinking about the contradiction of progress and poverty. And that's the name of his famous book that was published, I believe, in 1897 and became the book to read in economics of its time, and even afterwards, and not just by economists, not by politicians, not by the intelligentsia, but also by the middle class. It was really quite a remarkable, remarkable movement. And he uh, called his book Progress and Poverty because he seemed to see a very major contradiction that the result of progress in productive capacity through the Industrial Revolution, that the result of that progress, which was supposed to bring up everybody, like, you know, the tide rising, lazing, uh, raising all boats, instead it brought about the increase in the standard of living of the well-to-do, including a certain portion of the middle class, but at the expense of the working class. That we're talking about the latter part of the 19th century. That changed somewhat in uh, the first part of the 20th century, even with the Great Depression, that you had the rise of a middle class, and in particular, after the Second World War, the middle class was doing very, very nicely until about the 1970s. That is to say, you know, you can have a middle class uh, family actually having uh, a, a nice house, a car or two, 
being able to send their uh, children to college. They had sufficient money to pay for the food and where they lived, and then colleges were, public colleges were for free. Uh, and so uh, there was a sense in which the rising tide, uh, yes, brought the sailing boats of, of the rich very much higher, but nevertheless, some of the boats of the middle class, or many of the boats of the middle class, rose, even the working class. If you worked in, uh, in a company producing cars, for example, you know, you could have uh, a, a decent living. It's since then, with the undermining of all, virtually all, or FDR's uh, social programs, that uh, we get this uh, immiseration of the working class and even the middle class. And that's what people mean when they say that the American dream uh, has been undermined in the last 40, 50 years. Right. So, uh, if indeed the earth is, is God's gift to human beings, that is to say, without effort, we can benefit from the earth. Uh, and if it belongs to everyone, how do we practically do this? Well, it's impractical to divide up all of the land and give every family a certain piece of land, yes? Yeah. Because... Uh, that would mean that, you know, somebody would have a rocky part of the land, somebody would have uh, the ocean, somebody would have a mountain, somebody would have, you know, and they're not equally productive. So uh, it's altogether impractical to do that. So what is the alternative in terms of something really very practical so that we can have the equal distribution of the benefits of the fruits of the land without distributing the land to everyone. I mean, the other impracticality, of course, of not dividing up the land to each one is when you have another member of the family being born, you know, how will they get additional land? You know, it's an insoluble problem. Uh, so, can can we uh, yeah can we talk about uh, when you talk about benefits of the land we're we're talking about extraction from the land it, all the all the various ways whether it's agriculture or minerals of extraction from the land right and that that's what we're talking about when we talk about benefits from the land yeah it's extraction it's uh, food uh, some some of the things that we take from the land to use to to feed ourselves uh, uh, to heal ourselves from illnesses etc with herbs and what have you uh, uh, also to have a good life you know all of those things are extractive, although there are certain things that are extracted that do not multiply anymore, and that those things that are extracted, although that's not the right word, that can reproduce. So if you take oil out of the ground, it's not going to reproduce itself. Yes, it's just one amount of uh, wealth that is there, and once you start using it up, then it's gone. On the other hand, there are the other kinds of things like forests, so that if you are uh, wise and you use only the income from, uh, from uh, the trees, then you can cut down trees without doing away with the forest so that the next generation or the next season you still have more trees to uh, to use up for your own purposes. Mm -hmm. So actually uh, Herman Daly deals with that issue and he suggests that the the condition for extracting the second kind of extraction, namely with one that can reproduce itself, the rule there is to use only the income without touching the capital, yes? 
you don't uh, erase all of the the forest you just take the amount that was produced that year and so it can be sustained just like a financial advisor will tell you that when you no longer are adding to your wealth, uh, your wealth can be uh, very well used only if you use the annual interest from that wealth so that the wealth becomes, uh, remains intact. So that's the idea there. There's, okay. It's very, very easy to calculate how much you can take without reducing the capital. And that's with natural resources. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when it comes to something like oil or coal or other uh, materials like that, where there is a certain amount, and once you use them, you can't really use them anymore because they're all gone, then the criteria is that for every amount of energy that that oil can produce that is useful, when you take that out, you have to use that resource to build another resource that will produce the same amount of clean energy you know, next year and the years to come. Okay. That is to say, if you're using a certain amount of oil that produces a certain amount of work, you need to use some of that income that you make to produce windmills or you produce solar panels so that they can produce what you've done away with. And uh, I actually think that, uh, like, Norway does something like this where they are taking the income from their oil production and saying, well, listen, this is not going to last forever, and so we need to uh, pour some of this money back into, what would you call it, capital investment? You know? Well, there's a fund. It's usually called a fund that you use for purposes that, uh, that keep that amount of energy to be useful without polluting, in this case, you know, intact. Right. Yes. Okay. So the big, big contrast in the history of the world is that Norway is one of the extremely few countries that are doing that. And the big, big contrast is Saudi Arabia are just using it up and all of the income for the production of this oil barely goes to the Saudis as a whole. It goes all to the royal family. You know, which is really very interesting, which the royal family came out of only one set of oil loins in the 1940s and 50s, a fellow by the name of Ibn Saud. It's the only country in the world that is named after the name of a family. So, going back to our friend... Henry George. Henry George, his suggestion for producing the same effect as if the land was equally owned by the American people was to tax land that is undisturbed, uncultivated land. That is to say, all of the benefits that we get from land without it being mixed with human labor and machine labor, yes? Mm -hmm. Without tractors and without human labor, tax that because it doesn't belong to the person that owns the land. The land is owned by everyone. That means that we tax the value of the land when it is not interfered with with, uh, by human beings. So that's the idea. It's a very, very powerful idea. And by the way, it is a tax that is considered by one of the chief uh, conservative economists in the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, Milton Friedman, to be the best tax of all. Now, this is terribly important to understand because economists, by and large, as well as the general public, tend to think that taxes are a bad thing, but a necessary evil, because we have to have some money for the, uh, the government to spend 
on things that cannot be spent by individuals successfully. Right. So if you want to protect the government from nasty people uh, overseas or nasty people within the United States, you, you can't have a apple pie contest and gather monies in order to fund, you know, helicopters and uniforms and this and that and the other. So you have to have a tax. You have to have a tax in order to to fund these uh, these expenditures. So what constitutes then for an economist to say that one tax is better than another and that the land tax, according to Milton uh, Friedman, is the best tax? What's the criteria by which we come to that conclusion? And the criterion is very clear. The tax is best that does not interfere with the incentive to produce. Okay. So if you tax me, for example, or, or my capital, my machinery, then I really won't have an incentive or my incentive will be reduced to actually work harder, uh, save more money, uh, make innovations in machinery and in efficiency so that I can make more money. If you're going to take away an extra amount of money, then I say to hell with it. I'm not going to use my talents and my efforts for that. I'll just sit back and enjoy life. Uh, the same with an income for a worker. Why would I work uh, so very hard when there's an imposition of uh, a tax on my income? This tax that uh, our friend imposed on land does not diminish anybody's efforts to become a better entrepreneur or a better worker. So it's in that sense that it's a very, very good tax. Yeah, now, it would it would uh, appeal to uh, a lot of lot of people. <laughs> if, a great number you know, of people. Say, hey, yes, what, that's right. How do you think you would like it if you know your income was not taxed? Yeah, or your capital. You know, you yes. put a lot of effort in being creative, in uh, saving money, in uh, taking a risk and borrowing money in order to produce a business, and then comes the government taking that money away. Now, the thing that is also important is there are two sides to any tax, of course. One is that it does not interfere with uh, productivity or the effects on productivity are minimal. And the other one is, well, what is the money going to be used for? Well, that one depends, of course, on how good a government you have, right? Mm -hmm. they, and that, in turn, depends on how good a democracy you have. So if you vote or allow a government to come into power that is uh, dictatorial or that it is uh, oligarchical, if you will, uh, then you're to blame for not having that government use the resources that they gain from the taxation in a way that's good for the common good and is only used for their own purposes. For, right. You know. Uh, now, so, yes. let, let me ask, mm -hmm. I, I'm still not clear as how you get tax out of uncultivated land, land not being used. Who is actually paying that tax? Where, where is the actual money for uncultivated? Is it the owners of the land that that's pay right. that tax? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Whoever it is. And you can also decide as a government that it's the owners of the land, and if some of the land is owned by the government, that the land that is owned by the government doesn't pay any taxes. You can decide that. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Leave it uncultivated as uh, places where uh, people can go and visit. and you know. Now, isn't like uh, Henry George really bearing down on the whole idea of the rentier class of, That's right. of people who, because they own the land can have other people do the production of the land and then they just sit back and, yes, that's and right. take rent. As a matter of fact, David Ricardo, the second, perhaps even equivalent, great economist as Adam Smith in the beginning of the 19th century, 
1817 or so, is considered by economists one of the great economists in history. And one in one of his uh, writings and point of views is that when he was writing about who he expects to gain from the Industrial Revolution, who's going to benefit from the Industrial Revolution? Mm-hmm. Now, the principal view at that time and subsequently is that the people who would benefit from the Industrial Revolution would be the capitalists and eventually the workers, right? Because they would eventually be able to be skilled workers and therefore they would earn money on the basis of skill rather than just unskilled labor. They would have fewer members of a family, therefore there wouldn't be so many laborers to go after very few jobs. And of course, the capitalists would win. Mm-hmm. eventually. But uh, David Ricardo was of a different opinion. <laughs> and the different opinion was that, uh, no, it was the landowners, the very people who did absolutely nothing in comparison to the capitalists and the laborer, who are going to gain the most. Mm. And his argument was that as the Industrial Revolution evolved, there would be a great demand for the resources of the land that landowners owned, right? From labor for food and from industrialists for natural resources. And so the landowner would just sit back and do absolutely nothing and just have the prices of uh, uh, resources and the prices of food just go up and up and up and up and up. And so they would benefit without having done anything. And that's what is known in economics as economic yeah. rent. Economic rent. Okay, uh, so making let me money give you the definition <laughs> of that, right? Economic rent is the amount of income that comes to you as a result of the difference between the benefit that you receive in terms of price, yes? Yes. And the effort that you put into producing that. So if you put no effort, right, you're just sitting there, right. you're doing no effort, all of your income is economic rent, <laughs> right? Correct. Yes. Uh, we, uh, and industrialists found a way of getting economic rent in another way. All right. And that other way was monopoly. Okay, yes. Right? The, the, the way that you get economic rent is that you charge a price that is considerably higher or higher than your cost of production. The cost of production including your, the cost for, uh, for your labor as an owner. Right. <clears throat> That's how people become really rich is by creating monopolies. Not because rich people are a hundred times or a thousand times more talented or work a thousand times harder uh, than somebody else. Right. It's because and they create monopolies. And my understanding, uh, the creator of the game monopoly did so precisely to show how capitalism leads to monopolies and the unfairness of rent. because Economic rent, we yes, need to call it. And that's right? exactly what it is. The winner of Monopoly is the one who's, who every time you, you land on his property, you pay rent. And that's right. you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and hope so, that somebody lands on your property. So Michael Hudson has two sources, it seems to me, of economic rent. One is owning land, the other one is uh, monopolies, and the third one is being a banker, because it costs virtually nothing to produce uh, money, right? Right. It's, uh, you just type it in, in a book, and uh, you charge interest. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know? So you're charging a price for, uh, that's what interest is, is a price for money. But suppose that to create money, it doesn't cost you anything. Now the kind of money that we're producing now. Obviously, the kind of money that is produced in antiquity, namely coin, you know, does cost something. But you can put a value on the coin that is greater than the amount of uh, metal that you put into it. And that's called seigneurage, from a French word, seigneur, 
means uh, not sovereign, but uh, um, you know somebody who's in in high position. Right. Lord, actually, it means lord. Mm -hmm. So the lords can issue money, and the value of which can be greater than the amount that is put in to the coin. And all of that benefit of seigneurage is uh, put into the pockets of the sovereign. In the case of the bankers, it's put in the pockets of the bankers. So uh, I was reading a little bit, you can correct me on the pronunciation of Paul Yanni. Yes. Um, and he's done a lot of discussion and was very aggressive against the sort of neoliberal economics that was pushing its way forward by people like uh, Hayek and Margaret Thatcher and Milton Friedman and Milton Friedman. And they were really pushing for this idea that there's no such thing as a society. <laughs> there, uh, There's yes. only the market. And here's the key thing as it's connected to land is they wanted to disconnect markets from being embedded in society. Yes. And, which means land and labor. And so it becomes this... And culture and yes. laws and yes. all of that. Yes. yes, and so essentially Alec is in this saying we want the free market to be king. We want free market to be the Lord or God even. Uh, yes, and it's uh, not the free market. It was suggested by Adam Smith. That is to say, the market that was suggested by Adam Smith is an extremely uh, competitive market, and each individual in the market is very, very small. So it's altogether anti-monopolistic. That's one point about Adam Smith. He maintains or comes from the position that human beings are rational, (laughs) and that therefore they won't go on essentially just looking for more. You know, when they have enough, they would stop. Well, that was a wrong assumption there, well, isn't it? Well, <laughs> yeah, it was in a certain sense and not in another. That is to say, with the, the coming of the first part of the 20th century, especially big business in, uh, in the United States were very concerned that people would act rationally and they needed something to increase the demand. And that something came in in the form of advertising. Right, right. That advertising does not attempt to reach people rationally. It attempts to, to go to the unconscious. And so there, if you implant in the unconscious the notion or the belief, rather, that more is always better, then that's how you will automatically go in that direction. That is to say, it was used to create addictions. That's my interpretation of advertising. And and then, since uh, the 70s or so, these techniques have been used in advertising in the political arena and not only in the business arena. And so you get this uh, amazement of why people vote against their own interests. It's because it's the unconscious that has taken over and attends to working in ways that are against against their own interests, just as everybody knows that drinking too much is destructive of your own health, your own psychological well-being, and that of your family, the people that you claim you love. And yet, people behave that way. So why not generalize and say that that is the case with respect to who you vote for? And this is the issue that, in my estimation, uh, democracy is not locked into. Yes. So I want to just return to Polanyi and, and this whole idea of disembedding the market from society in which uh, Hayek and, and others mm-hmm. argue that markets are natural, it's yes. a natural thing. And yet, under this sort of free market as king approach, it turns nature 
into a commodity. And that's that's the super irony which we're living with the destruction of nature today. They they've replaced natural markets with with actually nature, which is again land and labor as natural. Yes, and my own sense is again that that is how shall I say I can't avoid the conclusion that is purposely chosen to go along with the notion that if it's natural, it's good. Yes, it really appears that they've, you know, listen, listen, this is natural. And and there's so many people that still believe that in America today. You know, you just got to let the, the markets be free. And Pollyanni's argument is that, no, it, it has to be subordinate to society, not not the king of society. Yes. And you can have free markets that are embedded in a society. Pollyanni has three economic systems. There's gift exchange, which you have talked about before. And uh, Kenneth Boulding. Boulding talks about that. And then the other one is uh, redistributive e- economics, in, in which the main goal is the right and just distribution of goods. And then there's a market exchange. Yeah. And so these should all operate simultaneously and in coordination with each other. But the real sad irony right now is that the whole idea of market exchange being an, an independent, uh, free of social constraints is essentially killing the planet mm-hmm. and rendering social life, tearing it apart is basically what's happening. So many times on my Facebook, I've just made the appeal. We have we have got to find, it. it's not hard to find, is it, Alex, a, a, a economic alternatives. And somehow it's got to be combined with, with a uh, political will we are going to get to this because it, it, it every single one of our sessions come down to is what what will it take for you know the vast amount of humans to realize hey this this is this does not work and uh, we yeah. we have got to start working at alternatives and hopefully they're not too little too late alternatives. Well, so. yeah, we need to confront that even if they're too late what else are you going to do with your life or my life when yeah, you exactly. know we fight for something that is uh, better for human beings and for ourselves for animals and also for our descendants right so what else are you going to do with your precious life yeah you know? all right well i'm going to wrap this up for uh, uh the time being and we're going to return with some more of the Boulder Bolding in the near future. So thanks for listening. Bye now. Thanks for listening indeed.